Let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 6 and 7. And let me review with you just a minute uh, about chapter 6, if, you, if we could. Let's uh, just see where we've been. You know, we were just singing a song, Armored Christian Soldiers, and some people in the church today think that song is a little bit too militaristic, I guess especially with Christians being accused of the Crusades and so on, and rightly so. That was a bum deal. Uh, but um, that uh, is still continuing today. And, of course, you can see what we're going to battle with. We're going into battle with a cross. That's what we've got to work with. Uh, so, but it's very militaristic. Spiritually, it's very militaristic. Uh, in terms of physical relations, it's very uh, pacifistic. Uh, but it's militaristic spiritually. And anyone who lives in this world for a few minutes, thoughtfully, realizes that we're engaged in pretty serious warfare. So we need the cross of Jesus to go into this battle because we face many, many problems. We saw uh, last week that in the first eight verses of chapter 6, uh, we saw the first four seals. There are seven seals that are going to be broken. It's the unfolding of God's history. The scroll that the Lamb is holding is a scroll that decrees history. And we want to see what history is all about. The first four seals are broken, and we see God's providential judgment. So those first four seals have to do with God's judgments in history. And certainly that's part of the battle that we're fighting. If you look in, in chapter 6, you'll see we face all kinds of things, disease and, and um, earthquakes and uh, death and Hades. Um, then in the fifth seal, verses 9 through 11, we saw uh, this peaceful uh, gathering of God's martyrs in heaven. So we were shown that amidst all this chaos, God's faithful witnesses, the word martyr simply means a witness, marturion in the Greek. So a martyr is a faithful witness and uh, basically one whose life was taken because of it, but nonetheless a witness. The witnesses will have heavenly rest. Then we got to the sixth seal and we saw all hell break, breaks loose. Um, that it's awesome, absolutely awesome. And we, we noticed six classes of men who are facing judgment. If you look in chapter 6, verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man. That's men from high to low. So men who seem to have high places in this life uh, will not be spared just because they're in high places. And a lot of men are in high places. I was just looking, uh, I don't know if it was USA Today or something. Maybe, well, I don't remember. Uh, maybe it was the Sunday New York Times. But there's a little blip in there about Hugh McCall. Some of you may know him. Charlotte, North Carolina. You know, he uh, some years ago became the chairman of Nations Bank, which had a $12 billion set of assets. And then he had a nice little idea in the late 90s to combine with Nations Bank and now it's, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, with uh, Bank America. Now it's Bank of America, and they have about $610 billion. It's a nice little uh, growth curve, you know, over a few years. And uh, Hugh is 69 years old now, and they were interviewing him and said, well, why did you do that? And he said, I didn't like being small. <laughs> I mean, you know, the guys just sometimes just don't like being small, so we like to get big. And, and uh, we can get really big and really important, and yet uh, things don't always go our way. I, I saw... In this week's uh, Commercial Appeals article, it was very tragic. Some of you saw Dr. Jonathan Drummond Webb. Some of you may have known him. He was only 45 years old, pediatric heart surgeon at Arkansas Children's Hospital in Little Rock. And uh, 
it, it, the article said he had performed 830 operations in 18 months with an, only a 2% mortality rate, working with these tiny little hearts of kids, just this phenomenal surgeon. And he took his life this past week with drugs and alcohol. And the reason was he felt like a huge failure. Felt like a huge failure. Do a hundred surgeries, and everybody'd be going, "98 of those kids live," and he would go home and almost die because two of them died. And they said he bonded very closely to his patients and to their parents, and just couldn't take the failure. You know, I, I find that to be endemic, not not to the point of suicide in most men I know, but in most men I know, there's that down the, underneath. Doesn't matter how successful you are, it's not enough because all you're hearing are the voices of your failure. And, and this guy took his own life. Well, this is the world that we live in. Talk about spiritual warfare. You're fighting things on the outside, and then you're fighting the demons on the inside. We better have a cross going into battle. And we're going to see that all the earth is facing the chaos. And then because of the immorality of human beings, uh, we find that God's final judgment is going to come, and we're all going to prefer death over what we face. If you look, for example, at the end of chapter 6, Verse 16, they called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. If Dr. Drummond Webb couldn't face his own condemnation and took his own life, how much more when we face the very end of history when God in His condemnation and judgment comes against all the sin of men on the earth, we're going to be crying out too, uh, unless we have some alternative, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So we saw at the end of this saying, it's awesome. Uh, to put it in terms that even an investment banker will understand, uh, he ain't putting up with your crap anymore. Uh, it's over. Uh, so there's going to be a judgment and accounting for everything we've ever done, said, uh, and thought. So we saw in chapter 6, that's it. God the judge is on the throne. Everything's going to come into account at the last day. Now, the big question at the end of chapter 6, we left last time with this. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? The big question is, who's going to stand against that? So that all the kings and princes, all the mighty men, all the strong men are going to say, let the rocks fall on us. Well, if that's the case, what's the purpose of life? Why even give it a shot? Why make an effort? And, of course, this is the reason that people do take their own life. And this is the reason that people do fall into despair, because they can't see that anyone could stand. They can't see that life does have a happy outcome. They can't see that there is any real meaning to life. And the 20th century is a vivid, graphic demonstration of that kind of philosophy, of existentialism that goes to nihilism that, that basically says nothing means anything. And uh, it leads to self-destruction. So that's where we are at the end of chapter 6. If God is going to judge every thought, every word, every deed, what chance is there for me? That leads us to chapter 7. And I hope you'll see, as, as I do, that uh, chapter 7 is good news for some on the earth. And I'm praying that it will be good news for everyone here. Let's take a look at it. Revelation chapter 7. After this, John said, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. 
He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Get the point? After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Gentlemen, one of the things that I've found through the years that really drives men uh, way down deep inside, and it's not too far below the surface of the skin, is fear and insecurity. (laughs) I mean, if you ask most men why they are successful, if they are, They will tell you that I'm afraid if I don't go up, I'm going to crash on the bottom. And it's kind of like you go up the ladder and all the rungs down below you are chopped off. The only direction you've got is either up or crash. And that's the way most guys live their lives. It's called quiet desperation. And uh, it's motivated uh, out of living in a fallen world. It's motivated out of living in a world of Revelation chapter 6. We live in a world where there's a great big God who made us and who rules over us and is not real happy with what He's seen. And you don't want to have a Creator who's a little bit upset. We've got a Creator who's really upset and is going to be judging the earth that's rebelling against Him and we're all part of that world order. That makes a man a little nervous. And fundamentally, existentially, that's what's at the root of all of our insecurities and all of our unease and dis-ease in this world. And the way to make a big switch in your life so that you're not being motivated by fear and guilt and terror in the middle of the night is to make peace with the one who created you and to be able to know that peace is made. I mean, that's the big deal in life. Once you get that settled, I'm telling you, everything changes for you. 
The world may not change so much around you, but everything changes within you, and everything changes in your future. So what we want to look at is what Revelation chapter 7 has to say in response to the terrors in Revelation chapter 6 in God's providential judgments and His final judgment. And the first thing we see in verses 1 through 8, it's really divided in two parts. Verses 1 through 8 is going to speak about what we call the church militant. That is the church that is fighting the warfare, the spiritual warfare on this earth. And there's a lot to be said about God's dealing with the church militant. That's the church on the earth. Then in verses 9 through 17, we're going to look at God's dealings with the church triumphant, the church that has gone into heaven. And this is the picture that we need to get into our mind. What's our status while we're on the earth? And what is our hope when we get into heaven? That will change everything uh, in your perspective. And gradually, it will begin to change the way even you react to the things that tend to terrify and create insecurity within us. And as I say, I think some of the most successful people you know are some of the most insecure people you know. Different people react differently with their insecurities. Some of us tend to pull away. Some people just get more aggressive. <laughs> but it's all the same in one sense. So the church militant is graciously sealed. That's what we're going to see in this passage. Because look what happens in verse 1. You have four angels who are holding back four winds. Well, what is that all about? Well, have you just uh, recently, do you remember reading anything about the number four? <laughs> the first four seals had four horsemen. What are these four winds all about? They're about the four horsemen. If you look in Zechariah, we were there last week because of the cross-reference here. In Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, you read about four horses or rather, uh, four chariots who are being uh, pulled by red horses, uh, black horses, white horses, and dappled horses. And then uh, in verse 5 of Zechariah 6, the angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country. The one with the white horses is toward the west the one with the dappled horses toward the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were strained to go throughout all the earth, and so on. So four spirits are four winds. Spirit and wind is the same word. In, in both uh, Hebrew and Greek are spirit and breath. So you have four winds clearly tied to these four horsemen in apocalyptic language. So basically what is being said are these four seals. See, now we're backing up. And what John is seeing is he's just gone through all the judgments, the four seals that have to do with God's providential judgments in history. Now, what does that have to do with God's people? Back up just a minute, and he says, hey, look, before even that happens, the four winds are going to say, hold on, don't destroy the land or the sea or the trees. Hang on until God's people are sealed. And that is the reason we say that verses 1 through 8 in this chapter, actually precede verses 1 through 8 in chapter 6. And you'll see this on a number of occasions, that in Revelation we're not going in perfect chronological order from chapter 1 to chapter 22. It's an apocalyptic, and we're going to see that there's much freedom here in the way that both John and others who write apocalyptic literature deal with chronology. So John is clearly seeing a reference back to these four horsemen who are the four winds. Then, in verses uh, 2 through 8, 
there's this huge angel from the east, from the direction of blessing, some say, who seals 144,000. Now, what is this all about? The first thing we want to say, we want to ask are, who are the 144,000? Who are these folks? That's a, that's a question that is uh, debated in a very lively manner. If you happen to have your four interpretive frameworks uh, thing in your notebook there, you will notice that there are different answers to that question. When you get toward the bottom of that sheet, the third from the bottom, the 144,000, you'll see that those who, believe, who have a preterist view, viewpoint, their revelation is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. They say the 144,000 are the Jewish Christians who escaped destruction in 70 A.D. Those who take a futurist viewpoint, which will probably be the dominant viewpoint of most people here or the one that we were taught, it has to do with believing Jews sealed during the tribulation. In other words, remember, from a futurist point of view, at the beginning of Revelation chapter 4, the church is raptured into heaven. And so all of Revelation 4 through 20 has to do with those who are not in the church on the earth. Okay? So it doesn't have much to do with those of you who are Gentiles who are believers of Christ. And so they would simply say the ones that are being sealed are those who believe, who come to believe during the tribulation. And that what we saw in, in Revelation chapter 6 is the tribulation. And then the sealing is those believing uh, during that time while the Gentile believers are in heaven. Now, if you take the idealist perspective, and I've said to you before, that's the one that I generally think uh, is most consistent. What we're talking about with 144,000 is the entire church on the earth. In other words, it's a symbol. It's a numerical symbol for all of God's people on the earth. Now, why do I say that? Look at Revelation 7 itself. First of all, you have this in verse 3. He says, uh, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of whom? The servants of our God. It's a typical phrase just speaking about God's people, His servants. So just in the language of Revelation 7, you have a reference that, to a generic description of God's people. Now secondly, I want you to do something that's a little tricky, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but if we were to examine the list that is in verses 5 through 7, it just seemed to be this kind of boring repetition of tribes of Israel uh, and 12,000 in each, you're going to know something, notice something very interesting about this list, which I think will show you that the Apostle John is speaking in figurative language. And there's some codes that we can look at in this list that will, that will help us see that. If you look on the left-hand side, what you see here, and I'll, uh, I'll give this to you next week unless that was already on the tables. Ah, beautiful. On the left-hand side, and this, by the way, comes from a commentary by Dennis Johnson entitled The Triumph of the Lamb. Uh, on the left-hand side are the sons of Jacob as they are listed in Genesis chapter 35. And the way they're typically listed is you take the wives of Jacob, Leah and then Rachel, in that order, and then you show the uh, sons of the concubines, uh, Bilhah and Zilpah. That's the typical way they're listed in the Old Testament. Now look how John lists them. What tribe is put at the very top? Judah. Why? Because Jesus Christ comes from the tribe of Judah. So he's very clearly reorganizing this in a way that any Jew would have picked up in a moment. Judah is first. 
Now, what else does he do? He takes the sons of the concubines and puts them right up under Judah. He has Judah and then Reuben, who was the oldest, and then he's got all these concubine sons. What's the point he's making? I think he's saying that, look, what used to be true, that your lineage was everything, is no longer true. And just as uh, the, the prostitute Rahab and others in the Old Testament who didn't have really great genealogy are included in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, John continues that tradition of showing us it ain't the way it used to be. And then what you, you notice is that there's no Dan in the right-hand list. What happened to Dan? You know, he's gone. You notice that Levi is listed. And Levi, of course, uh, had uh, in uh, Jewish, uh, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, was clearly uh, not given a portion of the land as the other 12 were. Uh, and you notice, or oh, the other 11 were. You'll notice also that Joseph is listed here and uh, that you do not have Ephraim listed. It's just, it's a stylized list making the point that Jesus Christ and his tribe is at the top. The order has been redone. It's, it seems clearly to be sort of uh, stylized and symbol, uh, symbolistic. So that's another hint that we're dealing with something here other than just a list of Jewish people. Then, secondly, after looking at Revelation 7 itself, look at the way the 144,000 is used in Revelation. For example, turn with me to chapter 14, 1 through 5, and you'll see three things said about this 140,000. You'll see, for example, first of all, it says in verse 1, the name written on their foreheads. So the 144,000 are those who have His name written on their foreheads, okay? Now, what you want to do is compare that with some other texts that clearly speak of the entire church. For example, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, leave your finger there in, in chapter 14, but in 3.12, we are told, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. So there we're told that the name of God will be written on him. Look in 9.4. We are told there, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And then if you look at chapter 22, verse 4, at the very end, clearly here, the very end of Revelation, we're talking about all the redeemed. And how are they described? Chapter 22, verse 4, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. Okay? So the 144,000 are those with His name written on their foreheads and those are the people who end up uh, in the city of God at the end of Revelation. So it just seems clear that the way John is using this 144,000 is to say those are the ones with God's name on them and those are the ones who are redeemed. So I'm just simply saying this because oftentimes when you look at, at Revelation, back to Revelation chapter 7 for a moment, you look at all those Jewish tribes, you think, well, he's talking about Jewish people here. And the futurist position, uh, as a matter of fact, says that since this is talking about tribulation on the earth, he is talking about Jewish people who have believed or will come to believe. And I'm saying to you, I don't think so. 
because of the, the way it's being used as the servants of God in Revelation chapter 7 and the way this symbol of 144,000 with a name on their foreheads is used to speak simply of those who are God's people who are going to end up in heaven. Now, we can go on and look at some further things, and that is the number itself. 144,000, what's that? 12 times 12 times 1,000. Okay? Now, if you were to look in Revelation 21, 9 through 17, you see all kinds of 12s. 12 gates, 12 foundations, the thickness of the wall, 144 cubits. I mean, I believe we're talking about symbolism that's tied to the 12 tribes in the Old Testament times the 12 apostles in the New Testament times a thousand, like a cattle on a thousand hills, which means every hill on the earth is to say all God's people in Old Covenant and New Covenant are all bound together in 144,000. It just seems in, in using numbers symbolically the way John uses them, especially in Revelation chapter 21, that uh, he's talking about a symbol that describes the entire church. And then you've got this problem, the historical reality that, uh, that the ten tribes who were in the northern kingdom uh, were basically lost by this time. That is, they had been taken off to Assyria in 722 B.C. and uh, they had assimilated into uh, the Assyrian uh, nation. So how are you going to seal people from the tribe of uh, Issachar when it doesn't exist anymore? So uh, there, there's a real historical problem there. And then lastly, if I can find my blooming. Uh, <laughs> overhead somewhere in here. But there's a, another problem. And let's see if I can find it here. You guys uh, give me a little bit of your patience, will you? Uh, here we go. Uh, biblical teaching elsewhere. And I'd like, to, I'd like to run through this with you for just a moment. And let's, let's just look at Galatians for a moment. Leave, leave your finger in Revelation 7. Turn back with me in your New Testament to Galatians. And I want you to Notice something that's very, very important to understand. If you're a Gentile this morning, Gentile believer, something very important to understand about how the promises of God apply to you. In Galatians 3, Paul says in verse 6, Consider Abraham. Abraham was obviously the father of this whole group, this Jewish group. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 7. This is Galatians 3, 7. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Okay? Paul is going to make this point again. Those who have faith are considered the children of Abraham. So, uh, turn, turn over uh, probably in your Bible to later on in that chapter uh, in uh, verse 26. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So you all have that title if you're, if you're a believer. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. See? Neither Jew nor Greek anymore. It's gone. That distinction doesn't matter salvifically. Slave nor free. doesn't make any difference how high in the food chain you are or how low. Male nor female. That God treats both the same. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now look at verse 29. If you belong to Christ, if 
you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? The promise of Abraham. That he'd have a great nation, he'd have a seed, that he would be blessed by God and bless others. All the promises to Abraham in the entire Old Testament. That's what Paul is talking about. If you believe in Jesus Christ, all those so-called Jewish promises apply to you and you become, as it were, Israel. And you say, whoa, whoa, Pastor, I think you're taking it too far. Well, just look at Galatians chapter 6. Turn over another page and see how he, how he speaks of you. In Galatians 6, 16, he's saying goodbye to the church and he says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule even to the Israel of God. I believe he just called us Israel. So you see the point here that there's not a separate plan for, for those with light skin and those with olive skin. There's not a separate plan. One plan is in Christ, the Messiah. So a Jew must receive the Messiah that was promised and the Gentile must receive the Jewish Messiah that was promised. We all have to receive the Jewish Messiah and then we all come into the nation of Israel, God's people. Now, in the New Testament, we're not typically called Israel, but we can be called Israel. Now, in Romans 11, we won't take a look at it, but I would say that that passage is the most descriptive of all because in Romans 11, Paul describes how this Jew-Gentile thing is working out. And he says, the Jews have been judged because they rejected their Messiah. So they got whacked and, and they were cut off. And there's, there's one olive tree that represents the nation of Israel. And the unbelievers, when Paul went into a synagogue and preached in the synagogue and the Jews didn't believe, Paul says, it's like an olive tree that got branches chopped off. And then he said, when Paul went out, uh, or the analogy here is when Paul went out to the lecture hall to speak to the pagans, the Gentiles, when they believed, Paul uses the analogy in Romans 11 to say they're like branches from a wild olive shoot. They got grafted in to this cultivated olive tree. So most of you guys look like Gentiles just like me, and you got grafted in. You were a wild olive shoot, a wild man. And uh, God tamed you and brought you in and grafted you into the olive tree. So you see what Paul is saying in Romans 11? That makes you a child of Abraham, that makes you an heir of the great fortune that was promised him by God. You got grafted into the one tree. There's only one tree, not two trees. One tree. Not a Jewish tree and a Gentile tree. One tree. And then he says, and look, if you, by being grafted in, you start having kids and they start, uh, being, then they're not reared in a way they ought to be and they don't believe, well, they can just be chopped right back off again. And he said, furthermore, don't give up on the Jews, he said, because although they've been chopped off because they rejected Messiah, you know what? They can change their minds. They can be converted, and I can graft them right back in, says the Lord. So we don't reject anybody. We don't give up on anybody because God can graft whomever He wants to right back into that tree. Jews who are cut off through unbelief and all the synagogues who are rejecting Messiah are cut off. They are no longer heirs to the promises. Do you understand this? That my Jewish friends who reject Messiah no longer have the promises of the chosen people. 
chosen people are in the olive tree, the one tree that has received the Messiah. If they are in a synagogue and they do not believe in Messiah, they're chopped off. They're facing judgment. The ones who receive the promises of the Jewish people are those who receive Messiah and are grafted into the olive tree. There's lots of confusion about that among uh, Jewish people, for sure, and among Christian people, to be sure. Lots of confusion. It's as though we think God's got two plans going on, one for Gentiles and one for Jews. He's got one plan and one olive tree. So this, then, is consistent. Paul's teachings are consistent with what I'm telling you. That when God seals 144,000, He's got one people He's dealing with that He's sealing, and it's that uh, His church. Now, let's back up and ask a second question. The first question was, uh, who are the 144,000? The second question we want to ask is, what is the seal? Okay? What is this seal all about? We're told back in Revelation 7 now, We'll hang there for a few minutes. Do not harm, verse, 11, verse 3, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal, sphragis, put a seal on, their, on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Okay. Now, Paul is using, I'm sorry, John is using language that is recognized out of our Old Testament. As you have, uh, know, We've seen this many times before. If you're studying Revelation, you're going to have to be ready to to keep dipping into your Old Testament. And in Ezekiel chapter 9, you don't have to turn there. You will find in chapter 9, when God's judgments are planning to come, God says through Ezekiel that some will be marked. And it's the same, the, the Greek translation of Hebrew in Ezekiel uses the same word, sphragis to describe the seal that's in Ezekiel 9.4. So when John speaks of Sragas, everybody would think, oh yes, Ezekiel 9.4, that God is sealing some people. Sealing them from what? In Ezekiel 9, from destruction. And that's the very context that we have here. So the first thing that we see is happening to us is that we are being protected. We're being marked out by God. Don't touch that one. Don't let the winds of destruction touch that one and that one and that one. I was reading one scholar this week and he said, you know, when studying Revelation chapter 6 and 7, I came to understand that I was in the 144,000. That that 144,000 was talking about me as a follower of Christ. He said, this absolutely changed my life. My whole life was turned upside down with gratitude. And gentlemen, that's exactly what Revelation is supposed to do in your life. We don't in any way diminish God's judgments. We don't make Him out to be some avuncular uh, old man uh, who just kind of you know, lost his testosterone and, oh, well, after all, I was upset, but I'll get over it. No, God is holy. He is just. He is powerful. His wrath is going to be displayed on the earth, but He has chosen His people. And He has put a seal on them. And he's going to protect them from judgment. And how is he going to do that, you say? Because, shoot, I'm so unreliable, I may be living like a Christian one day and not living like a Christian another day. Well, i got some really good news for you. Would you just march with me for a moment through the Bible? And I want you to go back, for example, to Philippians. And let's look at a few verses that will show us how God's going to protect people who are pretty unpredictable. 
seemed to be pretty unreliable. It seemed to be pretty fickle. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is rejoicing over the Philippians and he says to them in verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You hear what he's saying? God started a work in you. He's going to bring it to completion. It's part of the work of His seal on you. It's going to protect you till the end of the day by changing your heart and keeping your heart for you. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You'll see that Paul in that context is saying similar things but in a little different way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll go backwards in our New Testament here for a few minutes. He's speaking to the Corinthians. He says in verse 7, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 8. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? He will keep you strong to the end. It's not, you know, I, I used to think, well, you know, I've got to deal with this question of salvation and whether uh, Jesus, who, who He said He was, and, uh, and, and I could feel God working on my heart. And so I come to Christ and I think, okay, now it's up to me. <laughs> well, it is up to me in the same way it was when I came, became a Christian. It's up to me. I'm responsible for it. But let me tell you something. God is working through all of that, and God has it in His hand, and God intends to save His 144,000, and He's going to seal them, and He's going to keep them to the end. And that should be particularly encouraging. Some of you who are particularly nutty and fickle. He's going to keep you to the end. Once He began a work in you, He'll keep you to the end. Keep backing up. You're now looking at Romans. Back up into Romans chapter 8 and see what the Apostle says there. In verse 28, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Look at verse 29. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. You see, He starts with predestinating His people from all eternity. He ends up glorifying the same group. He ain't letting go. Charles Spurgeon one time said, there's no stopping this God. When He has on His mind to save a people, He will save rascals like you. And He will overcome your worst cussedness and your deepest meanness and all of your inclinations to leave Him. He'll seal you and keep you and protect you. And the worst ravages of evil are the ravages of your own heart because we all want to destroy ourselves from time to time. And we all do self-destructive things, but when you give your life to Christ, He takes it for eternity. And there's no stopping Him. This is the golden chain of salvation, as it is called. But one more verse along these lines. Turn back to John chapter 10. You want to know who's really behind this? In John 10, Jesus speaks about being our good shepherd. And here's something He has to say in verse 27 about how a shepherd really works. John 10, 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them temporary life. No, 
I give them eternal life. And they could perish. No. And they shall never perish. The devil's pretty powerful. He could take them out of my hand, but I'll try hard. No. No one can snatch them out of my hand. See what he's saying? He's eliminating any possibility that one of his branded sheep is going to get out of his hand. Now read on. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you can take a star out of God's hand, you can take a sheep out of Jesus' hand. And you can't do either. So Jesus and His apostles are clearly teaching this, that the work that He began in you, if you're a believer this morning, He will bring to completion. He is sealing and protecting His people in the midst of all this chaos. Now, Let's discuss, let me just show you a quote, that, and this will be printed for you next week. Leonard Ravenhill, who's a, a wonderful preacher of the last century, said the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make that man holy and put him back into an unholy world and keep him holy in it. That's a miracle. I'm looking at a bunch of miracles here. <laughs> Believe me, I know you well enough to know. And one of the joys of being a pastor is just watching these miracles. You mean that knucklehead is going to make it till the end? Yeah, that knucklehead's going to make it. Because he really gave his life to Christ, decided to follow him. He received Messiah. He's been grafted in. And he cannot be snatched out of the Lord's hand. It doesn't really have to do with his fickleness. It has to do with God's faithfulness. That's what it has to do with. So do you believe God? Well, yeah, I believe God. Well, he can handle these people. That's very encouraging for a pastor, beginning with my own soul, knowing how fickle I am. So, first of all, it's protection. Secondly, I want you to notice that a seal has to do with possession. We are purchased people. We are branded. In Exodus 28, you have this same idea with a name that's put on the forehead of Aaron uh, preparing him to go into the holy place. Uh, so he's branded. And the, the analogy that comes here with this seal is that you're sealed just like a high priest so that you have access to the Holy of Holies. So we belong to Him. We're marked out for Him. And we, because of this, have power. What kind of power? Power as of the children of royalty. We belong to Him. We're His possession. That gives us rights and authority in His name to represent Him in this world. That's what our mission is all about. That's the reason we can go into Memphis and seek to make a difference and take the authority of belonging to God to be a complete servant to the rest of the world. That's the reason we can concern ourselves with the Indian Ocean and all that's going over there because that's God's turf and we happen to belong to Him. That belongs to Him. We belong to Him. So, hey, we've got ourselves a good deal here. Let's go help out because that's our turf because it's His turf. So when you belong to the Lord, the whole universe is yours and it becomes your concern. You're empowered to take over the world, basically. With the cross, not with the scimitar, not with the sword, not with a gun. You take it over with the cross. It's very, very exciting. Now, what I want us to do as we close out on this idea of being sealed is to look in the New Testament at how the word sealing is used. And I'd like for us to look at these verses. First of all, I know I'm having you run through the Bible a lot today, but this is one of the ways in which we've got to understand the meaning of Revelation. With all this confusion... Let's tie it in with the rest of the Scripture so that we can see. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is going to use this same 
Greek word of sealing to speak of us in this way. In 1 Corinthians 1, let's look at verse 20 first of all. He says, For no matter how many promises God has made, what promises is He talking about? The promises of the Old Testament primarily. No matter how many He has made, they find their uh, uh, yes in Christ. So all the promises of the Old Testament and the New have a yes in Christ. In other words, you get those promises applied to you through Christ alone. For no matter, I'm sorry, continuing to read, and so through Him, the amen, the yes, is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set His seal of ownership on us, and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Gentlemen, this is the key to that seal. It is, first of all, the seal is the name of God. We saw that in Revelation 14. If you're sealed, you bear His name. Where does the word Christian come from? Christ. Christos is the Greek word for Christ. Christianos is the Greek word for Christian. And it just means the diminutive of Christ. That is, little little Christs. Little Messiah. So a Christian is a little Christ, a little Messiah. He has the name of the Messiah on him. So we're marked out. We're labeled. That's our family name, Christian. Secondly, we not only have His name, we have His Spirit in us. He seals us with the very presence of Himself living in us. In other words, the Spirit is our great inheritance. It is God Himself. What we get when we give our lives to Jesus Christ is a down payment. You know, if you buy a house, you can have a mortgage, but you put a down... Well, these days, maybe you don't put a down payment. It used to be you had to put at least 10% down payment on. That's a, that's a down payment earnest. It's the same word that's being used in the New Testament. The earnest of the Spirit. The down payment of the Spirit. God gives us a down payment. He seals us with the living Spirit of God. He seals us with Himself, Almighty God. Turn over a couple of books in your Bible to Ephesians. And you get the same sort of language in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Do we understand this? We have the living God living in us. That's a down payment of the fullness of His promises to us. He has given Himself now in this life so that we know in the next life it's all ours. And when you give your life to Christ, that's what He does. He takes up residence in your heart and He clamps down on you and holds you so that you cannot be let go. Glory be to God. So we are sealed. We are kept we are protected, we're loved, we're named, we're owned, and we're empowered then. You cannot lose. Think about it. You have nothing to fear. Because the next thing we're going to see in Revelation 7, if your life happens to end a little sooner than you thought, glory! On this side of the veil, you think, oh gosh, I don't want to face death. 
Or as Woody Allen said, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens, you know. Uh, it just sounds pretty grisly and awful. It's because you don't believe <laughs> what the Bible is telling you about the next step in your life. You cannot lose. Therefore, gentlemen, there is no reason to be afraid. And there's no reason for insecurities to drive your life. There's no reason for you to be trying to climb the social ladder, the economic ladder, any other kind of ladder in order not to fall because you can't fall. You cannot fall. There's this huge safety net called Jesus Christ who's got you. You can't lose. You can't fail. So now, why don't you live? Why don't you enjoy the liberation of not worrying? Why? It's, it's lack. You see how faith is going to address that issue. Now, I know some of us have chemical problems. We've got dysfunctional parents. We've got a lifetime of misery that we're trying to recover from. All these problems, I'm just simply telling you, as you begin to make progress on those problems, here is the root of the answer for you. It has to do with your eternal security in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the reason that William Hendrickson says, Let the winds blow. They will not harm God's people. Let the judgments come. They will not hurt His elect. What he's saying is, the four angels are told, Don't let those judgments begin yet until my people are sealed. And then let all hell break loose because the winds cannot destroy them. The judgments will not touch them for eternity. They will be safe. Let them all come. Let, you know, as Bush said, bring it on. Wish he hadn't said that. <laughs> but you can say it. It's not arrogance. It's not presumption. It's not because you don't think the devil lives or that he's powerful. It's that the one who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. And you believe that. So let's get on with it. And stop mousing around and acting like a wimp and someone who's a failure. You're not. So let's get over it. And let's keep reading these things that are told us in the Scriptures and believe them. That's the reason that Spurgeon said that once you come to Christ, you can happily swing on a cornstalk over the fires of heaven, over the fires of hell, singing, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Now, the second part of this book, and we've got three minutes. <laughs> second part of this chapter, I'm sorry, not the book. The church triumphant is gloriously saved. What John is seeing then, first of all, with all those judgments in chapter 6, he's saying, hold on just a minute. Let's talk about God's people in the midst of these judgments. Now, you see, the futurist perspective wants to say, there is no tribulation for the church. You guys got raptured back in chapter 4. You don't have to face this stuff. I'm saying to you, oh yeah, you have to face this stuff. John says in chapter 1, verse 9, I'm with you in the sufferings. Or the word there is just tribulation. Chapter 1, verse 9, I'm with you in the tribulation. So we're in this together. And believe me, John is being tribulated. His life has been very tough. And he's now in exile as an old man off in the island of Patmos. He's tribulated. And he sees his people undergoing persecution across the Aegean Sea in these seven churches, they're being tribulated. But he's saying you've got a seal on you. You can face anything. You'll work through the tribulation. You don't escape the tribulation. You live through it. And the only reason Americans in the last century have been attracted, I think, to the idea that we're not going to face the tribulation is that you're not being tribulated right now yourself. But a lot of the church is, and a million of them die every year because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And believe me, they know what this means. They're facing the tribulation right now. And they know they're sealed. And that's their hope. And that's what gets them through. And it should be getting us through too. But then we see John then is given a vision in heaven. 
And he sees three things, basically. We're going we're to do this in two minutes. First, the great multitude celebrates. And you can see how they celebrate. They're huge. They're from every tribe and language. You see, this is all the Gentiles, all the Jews. It's everybody who believe in Jesus Christ. The martyrs, the witnesses are in heaven. And look in, uh, here at point three. They're standing. And you'll see this in Revelation uh, chapter 7. Um, th- that word is intentionally used uh, uh, in verse, thank you, 11. Is that what you said? Okay. Um, yeah, all the angels were standing in verse 11. Nine, thank you. Uh, a great multitude that no one could count uh, standing before the throne. The word standing, you see, applies to the question, who can stand? These guys. They're standing. They were martyred. They're in heaven standing before the same Lord who passed judgment on the earth. They're now right in front of His face. Safe. Wow. So John is encouraging us. Don't give up. One day you'll be standing before this Lord whose terrors uh, sometimes cause fear in our bones. And then secondly, we see that the angels respond with a double amen and a sevenfold description of praise. They simply cry out, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. So the angels are looking at the work of God in preserving a bunch of knuckleheads and getting them to heaven safely, putting white robes on them, and they're going, this is unbelievable. (laughs) I know that guy. How did he get up here? Praise and honor and glory and strength and power and wisdom to the living God. This is amazing. The angels are absolutely astonished that you got there because they know you. They've been watching you. So the angels respond. Believe me. They're taking great joy and delight in this greatest of all miracles that Ravenhill spoke about. And then lastly, an elder sings a solo. And I, I work with some elders, and I, I don't know. I guess suppose some of them could sing a solo. But there's one of them that did, and he did just fine. And here he is. And he sings uh, about the saints because they're coming out of the tribulation and their robes are made white by the blood of the Lamb. We don't have time to talk about what all that means. But he is singing a song. Man, these folks have made it out of tribulation. And they've made it because of the blood shed by Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb, which has taken away their guilt and cleansed them of all their corruptions. And then lastly, uh, well, I'm going to say, John Flavel, a great Puritan, said, So in love is Christ with holiness that He will buy it with His blood for us. So by the blood of the Lamb we are made white. That's how much Jesus loves holiness. He'll pay for it with His own blood. And then lastly, the saints are glorified. They're not only identified by this elder, but now they're glorified because they're... And he sings this song in verses 15 through 17, basically three points. He sings because they're in His presence, they're under His protection, and they have His provision. And the elder is just rejoicing. My brothers and sisters, they've come. And look, God is spreading His tent over them. No more hunger, no more thirst, no more tears, no more sorrow. And He takes them right to the river of life. Wow. Now, gentlemen, this is the picture. Go out into the world with all the problems you have on the inside, all the problems you're going to face on the outside. Remember one thing. If you've given your life to Christ, there's this huge stamp right on you. (laughs) It's a seal. And it says that you belong to somebody else. And it absolutely seals your heart to His so that you cannot fail. So go out and have a blast. You can't lose. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the good news 
of Revelation chapter 7, good news of the gospel, suffused throughout the scriptures, in the midst of all the chaos in our own world and the chaos in our own hearts that sometimes causes us even to want to self-destruct, we pray that we may lift up our eyes and realize that you, the great and almighty God, who wreaks havoc in the world as judgments against sin, is the one who loves and cherishes your people and will keep us to the very end. Encourage us. Empower us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.